Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And I'm Mandy Kay. And this episode is about my life-changing experience with the book Julie and Julia, a memoir by Julie Powell. Sometimes you get a glimpse into a life that you never thought of before. There are hidden trap doors all over the place, and suddenly you see one. And the next thing you know, you're flogging grateful businessmen or chopping lobsters in half, and the world is just so much bigger than you thought. And this month, we are so happy to have Mandy K. Ottaway of Eloquent Gushing on the show, the co-host of Pop Culturally Deprived and Southern Fried Pop Culture. Welcome to the show, Mandy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is like a whole turnaround thing for us where we were on your show so long ago and you were like my whole way into real podcasting was like by being on your show and now you're on our show. It's like it's it's reciprocity. It's nice. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys have multiple shows now, too, which is awesome. Um, So, Mandy, why don't you give a plot summary of Julie and Julia for people who haven't read the book or seen the movie? So the back of the paperback that I have says, Nearing 30 and trapped in a dead-end secretarial job, Julie Powell resolved to reclaim her life by cooking in the span of a single year every one of the 524 recipes in Julia Child's legendary Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Her unexpected reward? Not just a newfound respect for calves, livers, and aspic, but a new life lived with gusto. That's a pretty good summary. I think so. You know, the one that I wrote in the outline I got from Wikipedia or, no, Amazon. And then I was looking at the actual physical copy of the book that I have in my hand, and I was like, "Mm, I like that one better. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like they got paid to write it specifically for the thing as opposed to (laughs) being crowdsourced (laughs) by random people on the internet. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So, Mandy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your first experience with this book and what it means to you? This book came to me at a time when I really, really needed it. Um, In the summer of 2009, I was a miserable person. I lived alone, um, kind of in a state where I knew nobody. Uh, I had just decided to leave Colorado um, and move back home to North Carolina, where my family was. But I couldn't get a job in North Carolina, so I got a job as close as I could, which was in Norfolk, Virginia. And so I had moved to Virginia that year. Um, I hated the job that I had gotten, and I was just lonely and miserable, and I kind of hated everything. And I went to Barnes & Noble one day, and gosh, this was probably in June or July. And you know how they have those tables um, of display books, like right when you walk in the door of a Barnes & Noble? They had Mm -hmm. um, Julie and Julia displayed because, of course, the movie was coming out in August. And so it's the the version uh, where the cover has Amy Adams and Meryl Streep on it. And it's very beautiful and very colorful. And so it really just kind of drew my eye. I had no idea what it was about, but I picked it up. And then I read that blurb that I just read to you guys. And I thought, that sounds amazing because I love to cook. And so anybody who has cooked their whole way through 500 recipes. I want to read about it. So I took it home and I sat down that night and I started reading it and I didn't put it down until I finished it. Oh my God. That's awesome. (laughs) Wow. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it was like two or three in the morning when I finished it. And when I finished it that first time, I immediately burst into tears. And then the next day Aww. I picked it up and reread it. <laughs> um, it. It just, it spoke to me on such a visceral and emotional, personal level because I related to Julie's character so much because she was unhappy with who she was. She was unhappy with where she was in life. Um, and at the time, we were a little bit closer in age. I was 26, 27 at that point, and she was 29. Um, and so I was really kind of feeling the pressures that she was feeling in her life. Um, of course, it helped that, that this book has a ton of Buffy references in it, too. And so that kind of had little fan me jumping up and down while I was reading it. But I mean, this is, I think this is the first book I can remember where I immediately wanted to reread it as soon as I finished. I can totally see that. And especially because my first impression of the book is that it is very much kind of a delightful mess. It's really frenetic. It has a lot of energy, but the structure is kind of chaotic. And, you know, like, I think that sort of frenetic style made it a little bit hard for me to get into when I first started reading it. But as I got deeper and deeper into the book, I actually started really enjoying it. And I think it probably matches the experience of what it was like to live through the Julie Julia project. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so when I finished reading the book, I loved it and I thought it was really great. And I was like, you know what? Like, I definitely... I'm not interested in doing a full year of it, but like I kind of want just like a little taste of the experience. So I did a mini Anya, Julie, and Julia project, and I did 10 recipes in three days. And oh my gosh, it was exhausting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I totally get the thing about it's like you work a full day of work you know, take the train home, go to the grocery store, pick up what you need, come home. And then you're like, finish cooking at like 11 o'clock. <laughs> and so I feel like three days was just the right amount of time for me. <laughs> and so I think the book really captures that energy really well. I also really liked the book because it was basically like a perfect nostalgia bomb for me. Because Julie and I are both from Austin, Texas, and I don't know exactly where she lived, but I'm guessing it was probably pretty close to where I grew up because, like, some of the stores that she mentions are, like, places that I used to go a lot. She and I went to, like, the same acting school. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually used to watch a ton of Julia Child as a kid because um, we didn't have cable, so I would wake up on Saturday mornings. And I would watch PBS and that was basically like all these cooking shows. And then, and I remember specifically, I would always be like really disappointed when the cooking shows were over and then it would get to like Yankee workshop or whatever. And they would start like wood carving or making furniture. And I'd be like, well, this is boring. And then turn it <laughs> off. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, Julia, Julia Child herself has like a, a very nostalgic place in my heart. So I, I really love this book. That's amazing. I'm really glad you liked it. I was afraid that I was going to be like the lone voice of like positivity <laughs> here <laughs> just because I am so like emotionally attached to the story. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that you liked it too. Oh, I thought this book was great. Like I'm, I listened to the audiobook version, which was narrated by the 
uh, author herself, which is also, you know, like that's always pretty cool. But it also inspired me to start cooking again. Like it's been a long time. And like, so as I was reading this book, I would also be up until like, you know, 10, 11 at night. Um, like I, I made seafood jambalaya, like I prepped everything. And then in the morning, like I dumped it all in the crock pot, set it to eight hours and went to work, you know, and we came home, we had jambalaya where the next, you know, like three days later I made uh, a big thing of like steak chili the same way, but you had to like, you know, prep all the stuff the night before. So you're up really, really late. And also like, I really related to her. Like I, I texted a friend of mine while I rewatched the movie last week and I said, you know what? Like I am this woman, like she, <laughs> there's a part in the movie where she has like a chicken and she's like stuffing the chicken and then it like slips out of her hand or something and it falls on the floor and whatever she was stuffing it with is like cheese or something like just goes all over this dirty, gross floor in their terrible apartment. And then she like plops down on the floor and starts crying and like scooping up cheese and just like slapping it back into this chicken's butt and just sobbing. And I was like, my God, that is me. Like that is, that is exactly the kind of fit that I throw when I am unhappy. And then like her partner that she's with is like some kind of saint, both in the book and in the movie. And, uh, and that's how I feel about my wife. She's just like, puts up with all of my crap and I'm like I'm a terrible person you're a wonderful person like everything is terrible and like yeah they're there just clean all this (laughs) stuff off the floor please (laughs) and it's such a snapshot of the early 2000s which was like this weird time on the internet right yeah oh yeah I in 2002 so that's when her blog started was in 2002 I didn't even know what a blog was I didn't start Mm -hmm. blogging until 2006 um, which was after this book had even come out the first time, and I was unaware of all of it. I had no idea that that was a thing. So the internet was just so much smaller back then. It's crazy. Yeah, that yeah. and sort of like the the presence of nine eleven in the book, I think, really pegs it to like a specific mm. point in time that I really remember. Could you, for people who haven't read the book or seen the movie, could you explain what you mean by that? Oh, so Julie's dead-end secretarial job is that she works for the government agency that is dealing with the aftermath of 9-11. So they're both uh, like planning the memorial and also helping families who lost people in the terrorist attacks like deal with health insurance and blah 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 and this and that and like and she's like the lowest person on the totem pole like when you call the helpline she's just one of the flunkies who answers the phone and has no power and these people are like the most heartbreaking stories and then she's like i can't do i'll i'll make a note that you hate the plan for the memorial and i will pass it on to somebody who also won't care like she has no power and like her job Mm -hmm. is meaningless And then she just listens to misery all day and gets yelled at. Right. Yeah, it gives you a better reason or a better way for you to understand why the Julie Julio project was so important to her and why she needed that outlet. You know, in the in the movie, it kind of just comes across as, oh, I'm an unhappy 29 year old and my clock is ticking, so I need to do something. But in the book, 
you really kind of see where she's coming from and why she's unhappy and why her life isn't where she thought it was going to be. So you get a lot more of that exposition and character development in the book. Yeah. And in the book, too, like, it really is about, like, her personhood and her expectations and her vision for herself. In the movie, they try and shortcut a lot of that by giving her a bunch of idiotic friends who are, like, high-powered whatever. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, It, like, kind of makes Julia a much less sympathetic character to, like, put her in this, like, weird mean girl situation. I mean, her friends are weird, but they're not terrible people the way they were in the movie. This would be a really good time to talk about how open Julie is with her flaws in the book. Um, One of the things that makes her such a sympathetic character to me and why I relate to her so much is that she's very open. She's very vulnerable. She's very honest about herself, her flaws. You know, when she thinks terrible things about her husband, she tells you what those are. When she thinks terrible things about her coworkers, she tells you that. And (laughs) none of that really translated into the movie. In the movie, they made her seem like Anya just said, a mean girl. You know, they put her in this clique and you don't get any of that internal monologue that she has. And so there's just no way to understand why her character flaws are good. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish they had handled that differently in the movie. Yeah. And I also think her marriage comes across really differently. Like in the book, you really get a feel for why she and Eric love each other and all of their history and his sainthood, I think comes across in a much better way and it's like I guess because it's like motivated by his love for her and by the fact that they are such a good match and so he has what seems like infinite patience and empathy for her um and in the movie I think they really like had to rework it so it's like well you know like their relationship was really good at the beginning and then it like you know, started having some bumps and then like the climax when he leaves her and like none of that is in the book. It's a romantic comedy structure. Yeah, they're together, then they're apart and then there's a romantic gesture and reunion uh, of their relationship, which all happens like basically in the second act. The arc of her story in the movie is about her getting famous. Mm. That's like her motivation is like that's her win in the movie is oh now I am successful and made it because there's going to be like a book about me and since we're watching the movie we know there's going to be a movie about her and like yay I was like a vain person who wanted to put all my stuff on the internet so that I would be famous and I did it and like that's not what this is about No. In a way, like, weirdly validates her, like, shallow, terrible friends because it's because she's successful in a way that her friends would appreciate, but her friends are terrible people. Uh, Right. But it, but then, in like a more favorable light, it's basically like trying to draw the parallels between her and Julia, right? Because Julia is struggling to get Mastering the Art of French Cooking published. I mean, I like the parallelism of those stories, but I don't like the way it feeds into her shallow friends. And I think that the script that Nora Ephron wrote, like, feeds into the viewpoint that, like, culturally America had at that time of 
regular everyday people talking about their lives on the internet. Like the basically the whole reason that this was newsworthy, like it got on the CBS nightly news across the entire country was because a person who was not important at all had the audacity to talk about her life on the internet and like found a kind of interesting hook to, you know, like I'm going to do this project in one year for people to follow. And, and people were like, well, why, why should I read your thing? You're not famous. And nowadays I feel like if somebody said, oh, I'm doing a blog where I'm going to go through this entire, you know, cookbook to try and figure myself out, everybody would be like, of course you are. Like, that's a totally normal thing to do. And as you, like, do your blog, you're going to talk about the place where you work. And the place where you work would not have a problem with that because everybody knows that, like, you have every right to tell your story about your life. But, you know, like, in the book and in the movie, her job is, like, they're appalled that she would talk about, like, how dare you talk about how you treat, you know, how we treat you and, and what your job is like. You know, it's like, it's just such a different time in such a short amount of time, like all of the things in this book that seem like very deviant for that time and place nowadays seem very commonplace. And I think that the tone of the movie is like very, very couched in that old point of view where like the reward for her is to become famous and to get a book deal. And the point is that she's like discovering herself and her capability. That's what it's really about, in my opinion. I don't know. Like, you watch like the other Nora Ephron movies about like the internet, like You've Got Mail, and it's like Nora Ephron trying to like explain the internet to baby boomers, basically. Um, honestly, I think you guys are being a little bit too generous with the movie. I, I um, know you hate the movie, and I actually thought I do. it was I quite delightful. I mean, there were definitely parts of it that I liked better in the book, but yeah, I guess I, you should talk about why you hate the movie. Um, okay, well, I hate half of the movie. <laughs> I love the Julia Child parts of the movie. I hate the Julie and Julia parts of the movie. Um, because I feel like what they did, and honestly, my question for Nora Ephron, if she were still alive, would be, why didn't you just do a movie about Julia Child? Because you can right. tell that was who she was interested in telling a story about when you watch this movie. And Julie and Julia was just the marketing gimmick to be able to tell that story. And so when they actually sat down and put the two together, they really overlooked Julie Powell and her story and what her book was actually about and why this project was important, just so that they could, like, force that parallel between their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I... The first time I watched that movie, and, and I mean, I own this movie on DVD, and I have watched it several times just because I love the book so much, but the first time I watched it, I was just utterly disgusted by <laughs> by the portrayal of Julie, because she is not the same person in the movie as she is in the book. Yeah, um, You I don't agree. really get to go through the struggles that she goes through. You don't get to have that same arc of character development which I hesitate to say character development because this actually happened to her in her life, you know, her own personal growth. You know, you get all of that out of the book and you don't get it in the movie at all. And so I feel like they just did that part of the story a real disservice just so that they could tell Julia Child's story. And so honestly, I wish they had just done a Julia Child movie. So Manny, I don't disagree with anything that you said, 
But I think because you love Julie Powell so much, you're focusing on the gap between what could have been and what is, and that's why you hate it. But if you don't focus on what it could have been, if you just look at what's there, like, it's pretty okay. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I imagine people who have never read the book and have only seen the movie probably enjoy it and think it's very lovely. Um, But it didn't make me feel the same way that the book did. I mean, like I said, the book was life-changing for me. It it related, it gave me somebody very relatable and it inspired me to get off my butt and do something to make my life happy. And I didn't get that same sense of inspiration from her story yeah. in the movie. So what did you do to to make yourself happier? Like, I'm assuming you didn't cook through Mastering the Art of French Cooking? I didn't. <laughs> Although I, I have made two of the recipes out of that book. Oh, only two. Um, <laughs> were they aspic? No, no, no. They were not aspic. I made um, braised cucumbers um, okay. because I was very dubious that hot cooked cucumbers could ever be delicious when cucumbers are basically mm-hmm. crunchy water. Um, and I will tell you, I was wrong. They are very delicious. And I made... Um, the beef stew. I can't do a French accent, so I can't say it. It's like bouffe bourguignon. Yeah, bourguignon. Something like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I made sure. that, um, and I was very disappointed in it. Um, but it was <laughs> fine. Um, so honestly, what this book did for me in, in, in 2009 was it just – it kind of made me start thinking. Like, I didn't go out immediately and change my life and suddenly become a happier person. But it made me realize that I could – and that I didn't have to stay miserable. It did inspire me to do a little project that that, that I started, um, I think, in 2010. Um, and then it fizzled. And then I started it again in 2015. And then it fizzled again because I just don't have patience for things. Um, and I know you found it, Alan, because you mentioned it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you, you mentioned it in the outline. Um, I love to cook. I do. And I love to read. And this book put both of those things together. And so that's perfect. And so I had this idea that I wanted to figure out a way to merge those two loves. And so I dreamed up this website and blog because blogging was very big still at that point in time. And I didn't know what podcasts were yet. And and so I, I created this blog called The Literary Cook. And the idea was that I was going to read books and then cook recipes that were inspired by the book. And I started actually with the cucumbers and the the beauf bourguignon because I was inspired by Julie and Julia, and that's where I got those recipes. And it was fun, but it was a lot of work, and I was unemployed at the time. And it turns out cooking a lot of recipes from cookbooks are expensive. Yes. And when you yeah. <laughs> don't have a job, that's not really easy to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, that project fizzled. I really enjoyed it, but um, it... It wasn't something that I could really sustain at the time. Um, And so it just kind of went away. But I kept the Twitter account active or whatever. Um, And then back in 2015, um, I had just discovered podcasts, but I didn't really know that that was something I could personally do. And I knew I wanted a project. I wanted to be creative. And so I thought about the literary cook again. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to like bring this back and refresh it and just try to do it. And apparently it just wasn't the right project for me because I did a few things. I did some cookies and I did a cake and I I did read some really great books. Um, 
and, and it was great. But again, it fizzled. I think I just didn't have the patience for it. I don't know why. Um, but it was nice because it, it did... Julie and Julia inspired me to do something, and then I discovered that that something wasn't the right thing for me, but it did give me the opportunity to try other new things. And so eventually, as you guys know, I did discover podcasting, and that is now my thing. That's my project, and that makes me very happy and brings me joy and, oddly enough, has nothing to do with cooking or food. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really cool that, you know, you, like, you tried this thing and it you know, clearly didn't stick, but I think it was good practice for what would eventually become pop culturally deprived. And, um, and, you know, sometimes you have to, to try multiple things until you figure out what does click. Yeah, I think I was trying to be too literal uh, as being inspired by Julie, because she did a writing mm -hmm. and cooking thing. And so when I was inspired by her, my first instinct was to do a writing and cooking thing because I love those things. I love writing. I love reading. I love cooking. But that doesn't mean that's going to be the thing that makes me happy or that that's the thing that I am good at. And I was clearly not good at it. It was a great idea. I mean, I will stand by that idea. I think the literary cook is a fantastic idea. I just don't think I am the right person <laughs> to champion that idea. So I'll just say that like a year ago, or so a, a good friend of mine came to me and asked me to uh, do a podcast with her. And I said, sure. And I was, but inside I was like, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, I don't know how to do this. And I am a terrible choice for this. And like that kind of unraveled, but also at the same time, like while I was trying to figure out how to do that, I started listening to your show, Mandy. And like that was when I first discovered your podcast and listening to your show and what you were doing and then like reading your blog and listening to everything that you were doing really like gave me, I was like, I, I could do this. Like she's doing this. I see what she's doing. She's trying new things. She's like remaking herself. She's doing podcasts. She's like a part of the same community that I am. She doesn't know anything more than I know. She hasn't done this before. And yet she's like doing it. And I was like, I can do this too. And I reached out to you. Like we didn't really know each other or anything, mm -mm. but I reached out to you like through Anya and said like, I want to do your show to see if I could do a podcast. And committing to that was like what really gave me like everything that I needed to start being a podcaster. I was like, I can do this. I'm going to go on your show. I'm going to do a good job. And then I'm going to do my American gods podcast with Anya. And like, so for me, like reading this book and thinking about you and how you got your start with all of your stuff and how like she was finding herself and remaking herself. And that's like what your shows are about. It, like you helped me to do that. Well, thank you. I know you can't see my face because this is audio, but I was smiling Aww. really big the whole time you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really glad you did come on the show um, because uh, the, the, the episode you were on was Dead Poet Society, and that was just fantastic. Um, but, but thank you for saying that I may have had anything to do with, with you deciding to do it yourself. 
Oh, you absolutely did. And I I look up to you and like I'm a huge fan of yours. So it's such a cool thing to have you like on our podcast now and like have it all like in a circle. So. Yeah, it's just all full circle. Like we all know each other because of yeah. Lonnie and we both had Lonnie on our shows. <laughs> right. And and we've been on each other's shows now. It's just this whole big community circle. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, that's a good lead in to something that I want to talk about. It's It was interesting reading this book about blogs in the early 2000s because I feel like blogs back then are were in a very similar space to kind of how podcasts are now or maybe a couple years ago where, where it's like, you know, this new thing and a lot of people are are getting into it and trying it and sort of like, and there were certain things that, that just really resonated with me. Like one of them was the way that random men on the internet would basically just like try and police her language. Like what you're doing is very good, but I just really wish you would, you know, like use the word fuck less often. There's like something about women and profanity that just like rubs people the wrong way like a certain type of person the wrong way and they feel totally entitled to just come onto your platform and tell you how to do your job um that is like so irritating and i guess it hasn't changed in 15 years <laughs> have you had that mandy has anybody ever like written to you and been like how can you have the wrong take on indiana jones or something like that <laughs> i haven't had anybody do that maliciously um I- i've had people share differing opinions. Um, but I've never felt policed by anybody. Um, and if I did, I've blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Probably the best response. To that. Yeah, I think, um, in general, I think, um, our community is just fantastic and full of really wonderful people. And, and so I haven't seen much negativity there. Yeah. There's, there's no like rice cooker war. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, Although that that section did remind me about how uh, in our online community, there is a thing about instant pots, which I guess is like the new version of the rice cooker. It's like the rice cooker plus because it does everything. Um, the like people who are into instant pots are like really into instant pots. Yeah, I really want an instant pot, but they kind of intimidate me a little bit. The one kitchen gadget that I really could not live without um, is an immersion blender, which is nice because it's also really tiny. Um, it doesn't take up a lot of space, but like basically having an immersion blender is the difference between like me being willing to make a soup and me not being willing to make a soup. Cause like <laughs> pouring that shit into the blender and then blending it in batches and then pouring it back. Like, I just don't, I can't even, <laughs> um, and, and the immersion blender is like, yeah, if you're wondering, like, what is the one kitchen pl- appliance I should have, like, immersion blender all the way? I have one, and I almost <laughs> never use it. So I think, yeah, my food processor yeah. is probably my my must-have kitchen gadget. You got to make more soups, Mandy. I'm not a soup person. <laughs> oh, okay, well, then that explains yeah. it. <laughs> I make all my soups from scratch. I have, like multiple saucepans going and one big pot and cooking things at different rates and putting them in. I love to make soup, but it's like, I worked in a restaurant for many years. Like that was my oh, first I didn't job. Know that. 
Yeah. And I've done like everything you can do in a restaurant. I've done it from running the restaurant. Like I've worked in the corporate structure, like higher up above the restaurants. I started out as like a dishwasher. I've like done everything and I enjoy cooking. It's just a time thing, you know, and like energy when you have two kids and, you know, you're married and you work 12 hours and then you come home and it's like, ugh. I don't want to spend three hours making a really good meal because you have to put the time into it to make something really good. Um, but yeah, soup is great because you can make it and it's actually better, you know, the next day or the day after that. And so yeah. it's one of those things where it's not leftovers. Like that's the correct way to eat it, you know, <laughs> but it takes a little bit of time. Have you ever made an aspic? Hell no. No. <laughs> that sounds gross. <laughs> I'm sorry, savory fat jello is just not on my list of things to eat. (laughs) (laughs) No. Not going to happen. Yeah, see, I am way too picky of an eater to have ever been able to do this. Probably like 80% of the recipes that she made, I wouldn't have been able to eat them. Like poached poached (laughs) eggs, can't do it. To me, oh, really? Yeah, I cannot have runny eggs. To me, runny eggs are raw baby chickens. And I understand how illogical that is. (laughs) But that's just how my brain interprets it, and I cannot do it. I can't even eat runny scrambled eggs. Like, my scrambled eggs have to have, like, no wetness. <laughs> There's no way. Like, all of those egg dishes that she made, wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Not going to do the aspic. Probably never going to do any of the organ meats. While I would love to be able to claim that I have deboned a duck, I'm not going to eat pate, so I'm not going to make that recipe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm picky. It's awful. (laughs) So, Mandy, is there anything else you want to say about the book? Um, We've talked a lot about how the book made me feel and kind of about the cooking aspects of the book. But we haven't really touched on Julie Powell's writing style. And I think that's something that we should talk about because it deserves it. Because she has a way with words that's just beautiful sometimes. And and so there are just a few quotes that, that I wanted to call attention to. The primary two, I think, where she really hits on bringing food to life through words and that sort of thing is early on in the book, she says, I have never looked to religion for comfort. Belief is just not in my genes. But reading Mastering the Art of French Cooking, childishly simple and dauntingly complex and cantatory and comforting, I thought this was what prayer must feel like. Sustenance bound up with anticipation and want. Reading Mastering the Art of French Cooking was like reading pornographic Bible verses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I love that. It is. It is. It's so true. But it, it's the way she put those words together is just beautiful. Like, I feel it in my bones. Yeah. Well, and she's very self-aware as she's writing the book about like what it means to be a writer, right? Because she'll give specific quotes from her blog mm-hmm. in the book. And sometimes when she's like, including this sparkling bit of prose, and a part of me, you know, reading that, I was like, I can't tell if she's being sarcastic or not. You know, like, <laughs> does she actually think that was good writing? Or is that, or is this like, now that she's trying to write a book, she's looking back sort of like embarrassed on what she thought was good writing when she wrote the blog but like yeah it's like it's a very writerly book i guess yeah and the next one uh was when she made beef marrow um the first time before she realized that she could have the butcher 
cut the bone for her and she was trying to dig it out. She said, if I had thought the beef marrow might be a hell of a lot of work for not much difference, I needn't have worried. The taste of marrow is rich, meaty, intense in a nearly too much way. In my increasingly depraved state, I could think of nothing at first but that it tasted like really good sex. What it really tastes like <laughs> is life well lived. And I just really like that. Yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. In, in terms of like her writing style, like her voice in exactly the way that you're saying. And I think if she was making fun of her blogs, like you were saying, you know, she was up until 11 o'clock at night cooking. But what you're leaving out of that equation is that then also she eats the food and then stays up and yeah. writes about it. And so that's like the last part of that whole thing. And even though she's like expended all of that effort and it's the last thing that she does before she falls asleep, her writing still was strong in those blog posts, mm -hmm. you know, when you consider like how tired she was. And I think this book is like delightful in, in just that way that you're saying. Uh, and then they're chock full of Buffy references, which was such a surprising thing. And like she also marks time through the book according to what season of Buffy it is in like the finale and she had to miss the finale of Buffy. Like, I can't even imagine. And neither can I. finale being, a, <laughs> and her friends are all watching it oh, and she's cooking food heart. for them. I would be like, absolutely not. None of you get to watch it. I'm taping it and we will watch it together. I like, right? I went back and I was like, but there should be some reference to like recording it on a VCR, right? But there was none of that. I don't know if she just left that out. I hope so, too. <laughs> I remember being horrified by that the first time I read this. Yeah. It's like, what is happening right now? <laughs> so my favorite Buffy reference, which is pretty subtle, and I think like only the most adamant of fans would probably recognize it, was on uh, page 148. And she's talking about her Aunt Suki from Waxahachie, Texas, which has a very fun Renaissance festival that I used to go to. That's like the one. I did too. The, noto the one notable thing about Waxahachie, Texas. I've been to that several times. Oh, really? <laughs> but I wonder yeah. if we were there at the same time. That would be crazy. <laughs> would have been when I was in third grade. So. No, then. Okay. No, probably not. I was, it was like the late 90s. Oh, third. that would have been mid 90s for me. That's funny. <laughs> um, so, she, yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's talking about um, her her aunt Suki is sort of like disapproving of her of her blogging, um, and she says, "But she isn't thinking of my Steve Dor's arms or my sailor's mouth." She leans in close and whispers, "You're worrying your mother. Don't work so hard." If you are a careful student of Buffy, you'll remember that in um, the episode Earshot in season three, when Buffy finds out that Joyce and Giles had sex on the hood of that police car. She says something like at the end, like what's a Steve door and a Steve door is like uh, someone who are they like load luggage or like freight on ships? Yes. Yeah. And so, so basically the implication is that Giles had sex with Joyce like a Steve door. And so that's like, it's a very, specific Buffy word that I feel like most people everybody who I know who knows that word knows it because of Buffy I did not catch <laughs> yes. this at all clearly time for another rewatch Alan <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't catch it in the reading either. But as soon as I saw it in in your notes, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. What's a stevedore? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's there's one more Buffy reference that I just think is hysterical. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to call attention to that one because I think Julie Powell really does love Buffy (laughs) as much as she talks about it um, in this book. But um, she was having trouble with one of the aspects And she said she had to watch both the episode where Xander is possessed by a demon and the one where Giles regresses to his outrageously sexy teen self and has sex with Buffy's mom just to get over it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I just had to stop reading for a few minutes and giggle a lot. Yeah, which just goes to show that she's like definitely into the Jane Espenson episodes. And uh, as you should be. And the the, the Stevedore reference. Yeah. I also really appreciated Julie's sort of commitment to a joke, I guess. So like at one point, she's talking about how she ended up sending a dildo to one of her friends for a present because, you know, she like goes through this whole story about like, you know, this happened and then this happened and I talked about this and then blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, and it was almost like I couldn't not send her a dildo for her birthday. So I did. <laughs> and I that resonated with me so much. I've like definitely Wait, you've sent dildos to people for their birthday? No, I've never I've never <laughs> sent dildos to people as a present, but like you know, I'm like pretty blunt in the way that I talk. There was like a period of time in which I think I just like casually used the word vagina in conversation because it was the word that needed to be said in that situation. So my friends in grad school had this Halloween party where each year they pick a letter for the theme. And so your costume has to start with that letter. And so they decided that the letter for that year's party would be V. And so it was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I guess this is what's happening. Like, I can't not dress up as a vagina for Halloween because that's like what people are going to expect. Like, I have to meet expectations. (laughs) Well, I mean, that is a very Julie-esque thing because she was always saying, what will my readers think they expect yeah. to hear from me? <laughs> yeah. And actually, that's that's another thing that I think would be interesting to touch on is that, like, audience expectations. And, like, Julie was blogging basically for free just because she felt compelled to do this project. Um, I know, like, Mandy, you have a Patreon page now. Um, so in some senses, you are more formally beholden to an audience um, than Alan and I are. But like Mm -hmm. feeling like, like you can't disappoint your audience, even though it's like pretty low stakes. I I totally identified with that as well. Well, yeah, because I mean, when you're doing a project like this, be it writing a blog or recording a podcast, yes, you're doing it just because you want to, you're doing it for free. You're giving your time, your talent, your energy to do it but you're not doing it to talk into a void. You're not doing it to talk to yourself. You know, you're trying to engage people. You're trying to engage a community. When you are the person that that community is centered around, you do feel some sort of expectation and responsibility, even though you don't owe anybody anything. Yeah, that's a perfect way of saying it. Okay, so Mandy, what has been your experience recommending this book to other people Or do you have any other final thoughts um, to wrap up our discussion? Um, Well, I always recommend the book, not the movie. And I always find out that everybody's already seen the movie, (laughs) so they don't want to read the book, which is really depressing. 
Um, just because the the book is so good, especially if you have ever had to go through your own experience of finding who you are as an adult and going through this kind of journey. It's just, it's cathartic, I think, to read that you're not alone, that somebody else has experienced this too. Um, you know, back in, in 2009, when I first read this book, it gave me something to aspire to. And rereading it now just kind of reminds me of how far I've come in life. And it was really good to reread it. Um, I think there are really two two more quotes that, that she wrote that I really want to call out. And one is, she said, Julia taught me what it takes to find your way in the world. It's not what I thought it was. I thought it was all about, I don't know, confidence or will or luck. Those are all some good things to have, no question. But there's something else, something that these things grow out of. It's joy. And when I reread that this year, it was so interesting because this year, instead of doing a New Year's resolution, I decided to do a word that was my year, like my word of the year that I wanted to live up to, to aspire to. And the word for me this year was joy. Oh, that's great. You know, because with this this whole podcasting thing that I've been doing, I keep saying I do it because it brings me joy. And, and that's something that I, I've never really done something in the past before because it brought me joy. I did it because somebody else wanted me to do it or because I felt like I had to do it. And so to see her come to the same conclusion from doing a project she was passionate about really just made her even more relatable to me. And it, it just continues to tell me that this is a book that should be in my life. And then she ends it with a quote where she's talking about Julia, but I can say it as me talking about Julie. She says, I have no claim over the woman at all, unless it's the claim one who has nearly drowned has over the person who pulled her out of the ocean. Oh, that's such a good quote. It is. And and that's how I felt. I mean, like I said, the first time I read this book, as soon as I put it down, I burst into tears because it made me recognize that I wasn't alone and that I could do something about it. And now looking back on it and realizing that I have over the course of the last 10 years, almost 10 years since I first read the book, I have brought myself into that place where I have joy in my life and that is giving me other positive things. And it's because of things that I choose to do just like she did. And it just makes me, I want to sit down and read this book every oh, year. <laughs> I, you definitely should. That's a great idea. That reminds me of one other thing that I kind of do want to discuss. What does it mean that Julia Child hated Julie Powell? Okay, so I don't think she she hated it. I think she didn't understand it, yeah. Yeah. honestly. I mean, when, Julia Child was like 90 or 91. Mm-hmm. And so I think she just didn't really understand it. And so I think the way it was presented to Julie was that Julia hated it. And I think that's how Julia and that's how Julie internalized it because that's how I would. That's how most people would if you hear this woman that you idolize doesn't understand or doesn't like this thing that you're doing in honor of her, your first instinct is going to be, "Oh my god, she hates yeah. me." And so that's how she wrote it and that's how they did it in the movie. But I don't really think she hated her. Now I'm I'm projecting I just don't see how she possibly could have, though. (laughs) Yeah. I think that it it also goes back to what I was saying earlier about, like, that time and place when the internet was first, like, I can remember when Facebook started to be a thing outside of colleges and, like, people who were older, you know, like, in their late 30s or 40s 
were, would look at Facebook and be like, well, that's like a vanity project. Why would you do that? And, right. you know, and like didn't understand like Julia Child had fought for everything that she got like the whole way. And you can see that in the movie. Like it was a struggle for her to go to school and to write the book that she did and to get the show and all of that stuff. And then to hear that there's, you know, some 29 year old girl in New York having a a crisis of identity and using her book to try and get famous would be like, you know, like that has nothing to do with me. Don't talk to me about it is probably how it felt to her. Whereas, you know, for Julie, it's not that at all that she's inspired by Julia. And, you know, it just probably wasn't presented to her correctly. And she didn't have the context. Yeah, see, and the reason I think that's true is because we don't actually have a direct quote from Julia Child about it. Mm -hmm. We have a quote from Judith Jones, who is Julia Child's editor. And it's a little blunt and a little brisk, but it's still not what Julia Child said. So I choose to believe kind of the way Julie did in the end of the movie that, you know, she still loved the woman that she loved and she was going to continue doing her thing. Yeah. Well, and I think that is the take home message for me. You don't really need external validation. If she had found out that Julia Child hated her at the beginning of the project, I think it would have crushed her. But she found out at the end after she had, you know, already gone on this journey and built up all of this internal resilience. And so in the end, it didn't really matter. Like what mattered was the journey that she had gone on in a way where it's not like a fairy tale story, right? Where it's like she cooked through the recipes and then she and Julia became best friends. And like that in some ways would have been like a little bit too neat I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think it would have been disingenuous if they had tried to do that, especially given how open she was with her flaws mm-hmm. throughout the book. And so to have tried to have given it that fairy tale ending wouldn't have worked and it, it would have made her whole story less interesting. That's kind of related to one of my favorite parts of the movie as someone who's involved in in publishing scientific articles. I loved seeing Julia go through the grueling process of trying to get her cookbook published. It's just like, (laughs) as someone who's been going through that a lot recently and, you know, like getting revisions and blah, blah, blah. And then like you go into a project and you think it's going to be one thing and you keep getting feedback and then it has to change. And then by the time you finally get that yes, it's like a completely different product than what you had originally imagined, but it's so much better. Like when when I was watching the scene in the movie where she and Paul are like on the porch and like jumping up and down and hugging each other, I like I literally started crying because I was just like so happy for her. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I was I was watching that literally. The day after I found out that one of my papers had gotten accepted at a journal. So and I like did a little dance around my house and it was uh, it was so. Yeah, it was just like it was very emotional for me. (laughs) (laughs) And on a more shallow note, I was actually really impressed by Julie's mom's Texas accent. When I was listening to your uh, Southern Fried Pop Culture episode about Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, and you and Kelly were both 
complaining about how the accents were not right. Um, they actually did a really good job. Her her mom's accent is very Texas. It's not like Southern Peach Georgia Belle at all. <laughs> Which is what Hollywood tends to do is basically just like, doesn't matter where they're from, just like go straight for that classic Georgia accent. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually really excited. I'm going to be in DC in a couple weeks for a wedding and I think I'm going to go to the Smithsonian and see if I can uh, find the exhibit with Julia's kitchen um, and maybe leave a little butter offering. I wonder like how much butter the security (laughs) guards have to be like constantly (laughs) cleaning up off of that shelf. I really want to know if they have a sign put up now that says, please do not leave butter. And if they do, you need to take a picture of it for us. I will definitely take a picture. I will let you know. Alan, do you have any other final thoughts? I really loved the way that it starts off. It talks about her sneaking looks, and I think it's the joy of sex. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes. In her parents' room, and how she like jumbles that up together with the Julia Child book, <clears throat> and all of it is like very adult, and that's kind of what the book is about, right? It's her transitioning into her full adulthood. And like, that's part of what makes this book so wonderful. Like you get to see, she's very honest about like all of her flaws and her shortcomings. She doesn't sanitize her narrative. Mm -hmm. And you get all those messy details. And like, I didn't always like her in the book. I was like, oh, you are, that's not cool. But at the same time, I'm like, but that means I can trust you. And I can trust everything that you're saying. Uh, So I just think it's a fantastic memoir. And I totally agree with Mandy that if you've seen the movie and you think you know this story, you really should read the book because not only is like the writing excellent, uh, but it's just a different story. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic piece of work. So join us next month for a conversation about the teen exploitation noir movie Brick um, with guest Joshua Unruh of Pulp Diction Productions. Yeah, Brick is uh, Ryan Johnson's first movie. You might know Ryan Johnson from his recent uh, The Last Jedi movie, uh, which has won like all kinds of awards, but is also kind of controversial. And you can really see like a lot of the ways in Brick that um, Ryan Johnson started thinking about and working with genre. I love Ryan Johnson. I like Looper. Um, the other movie that's about brothers i can't think of the name of it all of a sudden but ryan johnson is like a pretty fantastic storyteller and i'm really excited about the conversation we're gonna have oh that's so funny see because i love this movie um and i was actually i mean like we're having josh on as a guest but i specifically invited him for this movie um and i don't know anything about ryan johnson i didn't know he did looper or uh, the last jedi um, but apparently, uh, he's a cool enough dude that Joseph Gordon-Levitt still wanted to work with him after he got really famous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's kind of like a, a weird indie movie, but I think it was also like so singular that it, it did help make enough of a splash to get Ryan Johnson on people's radar, you know, higher up in Hollywood. And, and now he's like a major mover and shaker. So It'll be really interesting because I think he's actually taking over the Star Wars franchise. Oh. Yeah. So he's going to be like the next George Lucas in a way and 
just the way that he approaches genre and mashup and all of that stuff. Like you see the beginnings of it in Brick and he's kind of undisciplined and untutored, but also like he's so raw and imaginative that I I think there's just a lot there to talk about. It's going to be a great conversation. Awesome. Um, although I have to ask, does this mean J.J. Abrams is out? No. <laughs> Did, was that already a known thing? I <laughs> I don't really keep up with the Star Wars gossip. No, J.J. Abrams was all like, I'm I'll, fine. I'll do one Star Wars movie and I'm never coming back. And then, and then he said, fine, I'll come back and do episode nine. But that's it, you guys, seriously. Like, I'm not doing it anymore. So I don't know what... What's up with J.J. Abrams? Like, he does, he's not interested in doing it. And Ryan Johnson was like, yes, please. I'll do more of that. I see. So. Okay, no, that, that totally makes sense. So, yeah, uh, join us back here in June. So, uh, Mandy, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me everywhere on the internet. Um, <laughs> I am on Twitter at Mandy K. That's M-A-N-D-I-K-A-Y-E. Uh, you can find all of my podcasts at eloquentgushing.com, and uh, you can visit our Patreon page at, el- at patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. Awesome. Um, and I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at strangelyliteral. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at chipperallen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. Get a good page flutter in there for me to edit. That'll be good. <laughs> How's this? <laughs> oh my god, I did it at the same time! <laughs> <laughs>